you care about healthcare, if you care about education, if you care about racial justice, if you care about you know economic opportunity, climate influences all of those and overlaps with them so strongly. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to follow the intersection of entrepreneurship, technology, and progressive politics. And one area that is extremely important in that regard is climate. So I've spoken to a number of key people in the climate communications and climate and politics space. My guest today, Nicole Sistrom, has placed herself in a really interesting spot in climate technology innovation, working to accelerate investment in that. Her firm, Sutro Energy Group, works to connect entrepreneurs building climate tech with funders hoping to have positive impact in that area. Nicole brings three Stanford degrees and relevant work experience and relationships to this role. Nicole and I had a good conversation about her career path, her enterprise and what it does, the intersection of climate and politics, and what she sees going on in climate innovation currently. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Nicole Sistrom and Sutro Energy Group. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Nicole. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So uh, my name's Nicole Sistrom, and I am the founder of Suture Energy Group. I grew up in the Midwest, but came out West for, for college. I've been here ever since. And along the way, kind of caught the climate bug and have spent my whole career on climate change. It's not a two-year career anymore. It's, a, it's kind of wild to think how long I've been working on this. And I'm not even anywhere close to the people who've been working on it for the longest. So, Well... I saw that you went to Stanford and studied earth science. Yes. That seems like a good background to me. <laughs> yeah. What made you choose that as a major? The particular name of my major was earth systems, which is actually an interdisciplinary major. And I, I was a good student. I liked all kinds of different subjects, loved nature, but didn't really know where I was going to go with that. And I, when I came to Stanford, I took an intro class, Intro to Earth Systems, just to fulfill a science requirement. And I I just thought it was fascinating and so interesting. And I wanted to take the class over and over and over and over again, which was a sign to me that I should maybe consider majoring in it. And, and so I did. And you know, the major is, as I said, it's interdisciplinary. It's earth sciences, but it's also I took a lot of policy classes. I took a lot of economics classes. The idea being that, you know, you really need 
all of those perspectives to design solutions to environmental problems that will, you know, persist, right? You can't just tell a fisherman he can't fish anymore. Like that doesn't seem fair or right. Um, And so you have to think about, you know, how do we fish sustainably, right? And that requires knowledge in lots of different areas. And, and then I guess really the subtext of, of all my classes during that time was climate change. All of my classes touched on it. They all were talking about it as, as the big, the next big thing. And, and so I got pretty well indoctrinated and came out, you know, with a very strong point of view that climate is really at the root of so many issues, not just in the environmental space, but, you know, beyond. I decided it was the best place to spend my life and my time. So how did you, on exit from the university, yes. uh, start your career? My first job ever was actually in philanthropy. Well, it was in the nonprofit sphere. So I worked at a company called Pacific Forest Trust, which was a land trust, but a bit unique in that it was focused on working forests. And then it also sort of even beyond the sort of strangeness of it being a working forest land trust, it also had it did a bunch of advocacy work, all focused on how do we develop more streams of income off of standing forests? How can we provide incentives for forest owners to keep their forests standing and then manage them sustainably? And, and a big piece of that work was that the Pacific Forest Trust was doing at the time was working with the on the precursor offset protocols, which which now guide at the state of California level, you know, how to do a forest carbon offset project, how to manage a forest and get credit for the carbon that it stores. So I worked there and I was fascinated by the content of the work, but my specific job was I actually was a fundraiser. You know, I was in development. I was calling people up for philanthropic donations, writing grants, doing fundraisers. Uh, And so the sort of interdisciplinary nature of my background really begins from the very the very start of my career as well, following on from my interdisciplinary undergrad adventures. <laughs> that is a hard job, development <laughs> associate. It's grueling, you know, but it also, it strikes me that it, it is a good preparation for being an entrepreneur later on. Yes, for sure. You agree? Why? Well, you have to get brave really quick. Pretty much every part of my job is about asking other people to give money it's even a little bit harder than being an entrepreneur because, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're, you know, creating some service or product, right, that you're going to hand to someone like here is the value I'm giving back to you. And, and in particular, the philanthropy work I was doing was give me money so that we can protect forests, that you have to build enough of a relationship with the other person and understand who they are and what they want so that that value of like some forest somewhere standing for longer and, you know, carbon being stored in it and animals living in it and clean water coming from it, like that's valuable enough to them for them to part with their, you know, precious philanthropic dollars. I think it also requires you to think creatively about how to connect with people and and how to talk to people and what they want. And I mean, a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with nowadays on climate solutions, they often start from like the science perspective, right? Like they're super excited about the, whatever their technology does and the really hard transformation that they have to go through is is from that internal focus to a more external one, right? Like communicating with customers and, and policymakers and explaining whatever their product or service or technology does in a way that 
you know, really resonates with the folks that they want to use it and buy it and deploy it. So very similar skill sets, it seems to me. During that time, was there a part of you that was feeling like you've left a bit of the science behind and was frustrated by what you were doing day to day? I did miss the science like, because I'd just come out of school, right, where you get to do to learn science and do science and use my brain in lots of different ways. And then, you know, you go into your first entry level job and you're doing, you know, I got to do lots of different things, but I was really focused on fundraising versus the science piece. The thing that I missed more less than the science was I missed after a while, I missed doing the work myself. And by that, I mean, the advantage of being the fundraiser in any of these organizations is you often get a bird's eye view of the organization. You get to see everything the organization is doing so that you can talk to donors about all of the great things their money is going to fund. And that's really exciting uh, to be able to see how everything fits together. But then after a while, I was like, well, I want to go talk to the policymakers and get them to change their minds. Or, you know, I want to be working with the forest owners and like help them set up the, the systems and policies they, they need to, to to manage this forest properly instead of raising money for my colleagues to do it, which is why I eventually left left that job. I mean, I learned so much and it was a great first job for me. I got to grow a lot. That was really the main motivation for, for leaving and, and moving on in my career. I was just like, I want to do the work too. <laughs> I want to do it myself. So where did you land next? My next job was at a company called TerraPass which was really one of the first like retail carbon offset providers on the market. I think, um, you know, at that time it wasn't uncommon for you to, as you were driving around to see a bumper sticker on a car, right. That said like this car's emissions offset by TerraPass. And so what the company did was when the company originated carbon offset projects and then very often sold those carbon offsets to consumers. So like you could just go on our website and, and walk through your calculation of your personal carbon footprint. And then at the end, you know, you'd have the option to purchase carbon assets from TerraPass to offset those uh, emissions. So that was a very strong retail business. But then we also sold a lot of carbon offsets to really early, you know, forward thinking corporate customers as well. So my job specifically you know, going back to like doing the work, I actually managed greenhouse gas projects all over the United States. I think pretty much all of them were at landfills. We did have dairy offsets in our portfolio, but I had a friend who managed those mostly. My, my portfolio was all landfills, but I got to travel all over the U.S. to these tiny counties that you would never go to and, and learn everything a girl dreams of learning about landfill management and regulation. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. I think it's a dream of both genders, honestly. <laughs> yes, landfills yes, are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so did Stanford pull you back into its orbit around then? Yes. So I, so we talked about, I kind of started my career a step away from the work. And then I went to TerraPass where I was very, very close to the work, right? Where I was like, well, if I hadn't shown up here, that flare wouldn't be destroying that gas. 
and the and this offset would not be created. So that felt like you know very immediate. But then that even that that felt too focused. I sort of over rotated. I went way too far to the other end of the spectrum, and so I decided that I needed to kind of find a happy medium, right? Of like how I could do the work myself, but still have more impact, right? I, I have a limited amount of time, and and the offset industry, while I think will be an important part of, or at least the technologies in the offset industry will be an important part of whatever climate action we, we do moving forward. It just felt too narrow. Like it wasn't really going at the problem itself, right? Which is decarbonizing our economic system, our, you know, our, our power system, our transportation system. And so I decided to go back to Stanford for business school. And I got because I'm an overachiever, I couldn't stop it at MBA. And I went also for a master's in environment and resources, which I focused most of my coursework on the power sector, but went back to Stanford, couldn't, couldn't say no, had to go, go for another round. <laughs> Poor me. <laughs> Are you glad you did it? Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, without that time in grad school, I wouldn't be doing the work I am today. Like, no, no doubt. So it, it's brought so much to my life and I'm really grateful for it. If you were going to look back at those two degrees, what was the, the core one or two things that you learned there that transformed you in any way? It might seem a little bit off topic, but I would say probably the most important skill I learned and practiced was interacting with other people and working with other people and listening to other people to be an effective teammate, an effective manager, an effective partner. Stanford's curriculum is sort of known in the business school sort of world as, as having a particular emphasis and focus on what is broadly known as touchy-feely, <laughs> but the, the actual class that that name comes from is, I think it's called Interpersonal Dynamics. But, you know, it's one of the few, the few courses... And then, you know, the sort of attendance skills that came out of it, which I got to practice in various venues throughout grad school, it's just about like knowing yourself and, and how to and read other people and build authentic relationships with them, which is something, I mean, I use those skills every day, all day with my toddlers, let alone <laughs> the people I work with in a professional capacity. So just that was just really fundamental. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. And there is a, an interesting parallel between toddlers and people that you work with sometimes. <laughs> What's that? They take a lot of management. They're humans and they, and they have opinions and they require uh, the right touch to get them to do what you want. And you have to listen to them. I can't order my toddlers around. They just don't, they're not having it. So you've got to. And, and what's interesting, Nicole, is that a lot of times I've asked people, that same question about an MBA program or about another graduate program or some other kind of formative educational or work experience. And that same answer has come up. Really good students, you know, really high achieving people. And this development of the personal side of like how to deal with other people in order to get something done, how to collaborate, very common answer. It's really hard. It's hard. And it's, it's, really, it's hard to do it really well. It's very hard to do very well. And there are so few places that actually try to give you some training and tools to do it, right? Like 
I think a lot of a lot of people learn the skills along the way just out of necessity, but and some people are just innately incredibly good at it and but other people it takes experience. It's interesting you say that too because one of the in terms of like a very micro lesson I learned is I am a person who is more good at it and there are plenty of people who are very bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> That was so profound for me. It sounds so stupid when you say it out loud, but you're like, oh, other people don't think like I think. They're not as emotionally fluent as I feel. And so it's been really helpful. And, and yeah. people as have I, different strengths. Yeah, go on in life. What'd you do after the the double degree at Stanford? <laughs> I, the third degree at Stanford. The third degree at Stanford, because why stop at one? That was really when I founded... Suture Energy Group. And it sort of came about organically. I was, because of the double degree program, I didn't graduate on cycle with everyone. So I missed the, you know, the recruiting push that, you know, big companies are set up to, to hook into business school students at the same time, uh, around the time I graduate, I, I missed that whole big process. So I was probably for the good. <laughs> no, definitely for the good. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a time period where I was sort of like, I'm like, I'm not quite sure what I want to do. I mean, I'd also in, in business school content wise, gotten really interested in the problem of how do we unlock investment? How do we literally unlock money for climate positive things? And was kind of noodling on that question and didn't have a job and, and was just asked by, you know, some friends, people I knew to, to do projects for them all sort of around this topic. You know, over time, I realized that I really liked that mode of working. I, I liked building a consultancy, being able to work on lots of different projects with different people in different areas. I mean, there's this pattern of like interdisciplinariness and sort of changing roles and bringing connecting dots if you look over the course of my career and so I think in a lot of ways starting a consulting firm and building out suture energy group over time was it you know it felt pretty natural um and has you know kind of gotten me where I am today which is now having sutro as the platform that I use to try and help accelerate early stage climate technology solutions in various ways. Why the name Sutro? Good question. So um, I live in the Bay Area. I live in San Francisco and and Sutro, Adolf Sutro is a former, I think, believe mayor of San Francisco. And so his, the name Sutro is just attached to lots of different places within the city. And since it was a city, you know, it's a city I live in and love, it just seemed like a natural name when I, when, when it came time to name it. So tell me a little about how it's developed over time. So right now, uh, it's just me, uh, but it is an incorporated firm. And when I started, it was, I did more general work around climate change and finance and philanthropy. And over time found myself scoping down to really early stage innovation that could have an impact on the climate and trying to work with different stakeholders to essentially be a matchmaker, right? To build that bridge between the innovators, the people who are creating these climate-relevant technologies, and the various sources of funding for them. 
And so, you know, the kinds of groups that I tend to work with most are family offices, foundations, you know, investors in general, and investors specifically who care about climate impact and are interested in technology. So that's kind of one group. And then I work with organizations that help support entrepreneurs and work with entrepreneurs directly and helping them to, to find, you know, climate relevant funding for the work that they do. Um, and that can take on lots of different forms. That sounds like a really, really interesting place to find yourself or to put yourself. It would strike me you would, you know, have a way then to see what innovation is taking place. You're certainly in that part of the world that a lot of it's happening or trying to happen. And the funding side is pretty interesting too, right? And and you, it, it goes back into your early history of your career. I assume maybe even some of the relationships that you had from early on continue to this day. Yes. I mean, I started focusing on it more because it was an area that needed a lot of help. Like back when I started Sutro, gosh, six, seven years ago now, the tide was way out on funding for early stage climate. It wasn't even called climate innovation. I mean, we were really only using the term climate innovation in the past 12 to 18 months, I would say. At that time, it was clean tech because, you know, you'll probably recall there had been a huge wave of investment in clean technology at that time called green technology in the early 2000s by a bunch of venture capitalist firms, venture, venture capital firms. And a lot of that investment didn't really pan out for a variety of reasons. Around that time, there wasn't a lot of money, venture capital available for early stage climate tech. You know, venture capital is the source of capital that people tend to think of when they think you know, who's going to fund a really early stage technology company. And yet, pretty much every climate model that existed out there, certainly the IPCC models, you know, when you look at their projections about how we could possibly as a global community, you know, reach our climate goals, all of those projections relied on technologies we didn't have, or technologies that we didn't have at the right cost. There was a great deal in those projections, which is about deploying the technologies we do have. And like, I never want to say, that, like, I am not in the camp of like, we're, we're going to geoengineer our way out of this crisis. Like we have a lot of technologies that are ready to go today to deploy. But, but just that piece that I was like, oh, this seems sort of hopeful. Who's going to see these technologies? How are we going to get them off the ground? Because it's not like a software company where you just kind of, you can really go from a garage to global impact in 18 months, right? It's, these technologies take years to develop. It made it even more critical that we had to find a way to see these technologies now. So it just seemed like a really unfocused on area. And then I think to, to, to speak very personally, you know, missing the science piece you asked me early in our conversation, like, oh my gosh, these entrepreneurs, these innovators are just doing the coolest stuff. Like it's magical. It's what the science they're doing and the, the technologies they're developing. And it made me feel like I, you know, I was kind of cool being near them. Right. And proximity to coolness is cool. Proximity to coolness. <laughs> yes. Um, it made me wonder, I was like, gosh, maybe I should have gone, I should really have just like gone down like a straight pure science route. 
there's a real opportunity in an area that is unfocused on, as you put yeah. it, yeah. right? To be in early where something is being developed and to gain expertise and a reputation there, you can't replace that. Someone coming in later, you just, you build those relationships, you place yourself in that ecosystem in an important place. I think my ambition then, and still part of my ambition today was to be to be a hub, to be a connector, to help, to help matchmake between people who need money and people who need to invest it. And, and one of, I would say like the great joy of my work and, and really the thrust of a lot of what I do today is around trying to bring new money into the space. The climate community, especially in terms of technology and investment, and I would say probably more broadly, it's not that big a community. And we need a lot more people in it. <laughs> so I'm, tr- I'm constantly trying trying to be the greeter as people as people come in and say, it's going to be fine. You're going to do great. Here's all the people you should talk to. My guess is that one of the challenges about being in a hub is sort of the business model of that. How do you make an introduction and get paid for doing that? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. The one-off things, those are things I'm happy to do as a part of who I know and the role I play. But really, the, you know, the way that I get paid is, is just longer-term engagements with organizations, right? Or, or family offices who, say a family office is, wants to start out in this space, like having a longer-term engagement with them just to help them think through what do they want to do? How do they want to invest? Where do they want to invest? Because climate is a, an umbrella term for like 5,800 different things you can do to impact the climate. And so there's, you know, do you care about agriculture? Do you care about power? Do you care about clean water? Do you care about any other different kinds of ways to impact climate? Do you want to use philanthropic dollars? Do you want to use investment dollars? Do you want to use the kind of capital that sort of you know, catalytic capital that's somewhere between philanthropy and investment. So there's that piece. And then, you know, I've also done really long-term engagements with charitable organizations in this space, um, two of which I still serve on the board of, uh, Prime Coalition, where I'm chair, and Activate, where I'm a regular board member, and, you know, to help them think about how they engage with different stakeholders to get resources to innovators and entrepreneurs in the space. So there's different ways to do it, for sure. One source of capital that you didn't mention is government capital. I know there was a lot of investment in Obama times in green tech, you know, giant sums and some worked and some didn't as my sense i'm not close to it do you get into that area at all yes maybe to take a step back from government capital another piece of capital or i would say tool that i talk with folks about using is political giving as well because one thing that sort of goes unsaid in this particular conversation you and i are having and i'm I'm sure you've had it with other folks is how critical policy is to the whole climate movement Obviously, policy is made by policymakers, <laughs> so <laughs> political giving and, and and sort of working to get climate-friendly policymakers elected is, I think, another huge piece, another huge tool that a lot of people are afraid to step into. Specifically to your question, though, about government funding, I can't say how fundamental 
it is to so many of the companies that I've touched at the early stages, right? The Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, ARPA-E, SBIR loans, NSF, even DARPA have been huge sources of early stage funding for so many of the companies that I'm working with. And I would say one of the things that I'm so thrilled to see in this new Biden administration and the Biden Build Back Better plan, and specifically the portion of the overall Build Back Better plan, which focuses in on climate, is its very strong emphasis on climate innovation and increasing government investment in that. It seems like a no-brainer to me. It's probably one of the most obvious places that could get bipartisan support in Congress, which is critical. That's just the federal level too. I mean, there are states who are thinking about it very creatively as well. And that it's a really critical lifeline for these companies at the earliest stages, for sure. And cities. Yeah. I mean, it's up and down counties. People, you know, governments are are often working pretty hard on it. And I'm realizing I was only talking really about R&D funding, but there are so many other ways for government to get involved in the purchasing these companies. Purchasing, or, or I was also thinking about, you know, project finance, right? The DOE loan program, like guaranteeing, you know, c- certain parts of, of debt and loans. Like throughout a company's life cycle and growth stages, there are so many ways for government to support and sort of spur these companies down the path for sure. There's a, a really big split between the two parties right now on climate, I think very unfortunately, and not one that was always there. How does that or does that affect your work at all? Because it makes a huge difference right now who's in power in the states, in the federal government. The Democrats are much more interested in climate than the Republicans, and a lot of the Republicans are in the denier camp, not all of them, but too many. Yeah. I can answer the question both ways. I can say tell you how it doesn't affect, but then I could also obviously make the argument how it does affect. So I'll start with how it doesn't affect. So the portion of my work, which is about individual companies and funding individual companies, and it doesn't because many of those companies have been trained based on the experiences of like, you know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, You will find it hard pressed today to see an early stage technology company pitch, which mentions policy at all. Like they have all been groomed to not care about policy, to not depend on policy. So in in a certain sense, like that part of my work on the individual company level, day to day, it doesn't seem to. Now, I think it should. I think that's a problem. I think it's silly to think that these clean technology, I mean, any company let alone a clean technology or climate technology company operates in a vacuum without policy managing it. So that's another sort of secret pet desire of mine is to somehow build a constituency of innovators so that we can go in and talk to policymakers about how they need to make policies that matter to early stage companies. That's a side conversation. In terms of where it does affect my work, the policy context in which we're operating is is fundamental to how we're going to move forward on climate. And Republicans you know, it is just, it is a straight fact. 
Democrats do not have the majorities they need to pass things without Republican support at the federal level. And they certainly don't have it at the state level, which is where so much of these policies get implemented and done and where the rubber really hits the road, right? So how it affects my work and the work I do with families and the speaking I do and then in my own sort of political giving is like, I think it's naive to think that we are going to somehow, you know, in the next cycle, sweep massive Democratic majorities, assuming that all the Democrats can get aligned around a climate proposal. I think it's naive to think that we're going to suddenly have huge Democratic majorities and need to pass this forward, certainly within the time frame that we need to get things done, because we can't wait years and years and years until the policy environment is right. We have to do it now. We have to move forward now. The good news is, I think there are more Republicans out there who do want to do something on climate than is popularly thought of, or certainly that the Democratic Party writ large thinks there are. I'm hopeful that with Trump out of office, at the federal level at least, many of those legislators will feel like they have more room to operate and could, you know, have those conversations. And we, as a climate movement, we need to figure out how to include some of those voices, right? We can't just do this by ourselves. I guess that's the argument for how it does really deeply affect my work. Can you give people who aren't close to it a flavor for how much is going on in the innovation area of trying to address climate change? Is there enough money? Are we making huge progress? What's happening? Oh, I, there's so much going on. I mean, I, I talked about when I started Sutro six or seven years ago, you know, there wasn't a lot of money pointed at early stage innovation. Since that time, a lot of funds have entered the space. I mean, the most obvious one that probably most people are familiar with being Breakthrough Energy Ventures, right, which is the Bill Gates billion dollar fund. And now, um, second fund that they just announced. That's a relatively new phenomenon. And, and that's just the most visible of many, many, many funds which have been raised and are now in market since that time, which is great. I think there's still room for very early stage seed catalytic funding, which is the kind of work that you know Prime Coalition is doing, trying to unlock philanthropy as a source of capital for these companies, specifically focused on climate impact. Um, so bringing new money to the table. I, I think there are a lot of companies getting to the kind of C and D round stage, and they're facing a lack of capital then. There's a lot of money in the like A, B round timeframe, I think. But right before that and right after that, I, I, I think we're seeing problems. And then, of course, there's the SPAC craziness going on right now with so many <laughs> these companies going public. And, you know, this is an area which is now I'm just speaking out of the very personal interest I have. It's not an area where I do a lot of work or have a lot of expertise, but it is, it is remarkable how many um, kind of clean tech, climate technology related companies have gone public through SPACs in the past, you know, couple of months, 12 months. I think the clean tech community has a lot of hope that it will continue. That's just the funding side. I mean, on the technology side, like so many different kinds of technologies, hydrogen is super hot. 
regenerative farming, kind of agriculture technologies, very hot, clean mobility, even nuclear. We're seeing a lot of renewed interest in nuclear. And then the last technology area I just mentioned is, is carbon removal technology, technology that is literally just to remove carbon from the atmosphere. That's an area where it's really kind of coming of age. It's getting cooking right now, for sure. And we need those technologies. We're going to need them. Just being really close to the to this innovation in its early stages and beyond make you feel more hopeful? Or does it worry you that we won't get there in time? Oh, no. I, I don't depend on any of these technologies to get us there now. Like The work to do today in the climate movement is to deploy the technologies we have right now and to put policies in place so that people are, when they have a choice to turn over some big a building or a car or something, they're choosing energy efficient or electric or, you know, that's the work of today. These innovation technologies, these are, in my mind, they're in many ways about getting us like the last mile, the last 20%. Look at the power grid, right? Like you can put a heck of a lot of wind and solar on the power grid, you're going to need some storage at some point if you're going to take all the fossil fuels offline, just because you need to be able to guarantee some baseline level of energy if the sun isn't shining or, or the wind isn't blowing. You can extend that analogy, I think, to lots of places where the technologies we have today will get us really far and they won't get us all the way. I look at all this innovation as it's going to be prime time for all the companies that we're working on today in like 10 years is when we're going to start seeing them really at scale and and having the impact we want them to have. You talked about being hopeful, like there's a lot to get you down about climate for sure. But when you go in and like you walk into this lab and like you see this team of people working so hard on the technology they're developing and like and you have the potential impact of it, like, yeah, <laughs> that really lifts the spirit for sure and, and helps me keep working hard in the meantime. What do you think of the some of the really big companies and their commitments like BlackRock and IBM and things that they've been up to? Well, taken at a, the kind of like big picture level, I think the more announcements, the better, the more we like normalize sustainable operation, the less companies without, you know, fossil fuel companies large polluters have like the social license to operate, right? So I think the more announcements, the better, but then that begs the question of like, okay, so what do people, then they actually have to like live up to these commitments that they're making and they actually have to decarbonize. I think the good news is a lot of, a lot of companies and technologies exist to help these large corporations meet those goals. And I think it's also an opportunity for large corporations to think about all of the tools they have to help speed this transition along. I mean, obviously there's work they can do within their own operations and all of that, but then there's corporate philanthropy, there's corporate balance sheets, there's in many, com- you know, many large companies have corporate venture arms. Like how are you spending that capital? Is it going into these early stage innovations or not? How are, as a corporation, how are you using your political voice? I mean, that's the other piece that I don't think can be underestimated is, Large corporations standing up in front of policymakers and saying, we want this climate transition to occur and people will still have jobs. It won't tank the economy. That's 
so critical to making it possible for policymakers to pass the progressive climate policy we need them to pass. It's been really kind of nice to see these large corporations start to make big pronouncements like this, because I think it's something that's held us back in the past. I mean, that's really the main narrative that goes against all climate progress is like, this will ruin our economy, this will cost people jobs, this will cost poor people money, which I, you know, the air quotes other side has been very effective at perpetuating that narrative. And sure, there are places where we need to design policies well, so that the burden doesn't fall on people who can't cover it. But then there are also so many places where it's just simply not a true narrative anymore. And in fact, the opposite is occurring, right? Like (laughs) how many thousands and thousands of people are employed in the wind and solar industry? It seems like it's working out okay for lots of folks. So the Trump administration uh, was notorious for trying to purge science experts and data. Now, when Biden came in, they are counting it as one of their four major things that they're really working on and and trying to put work on climate into all the departments and all over the government. Are you following that very closely? What do you see as the big change and how hopeful are you about this administration? This is one of the most exciting things about the Biden-Harris administration is this understanding that climate, it is not separable from so many of the other things we care about. Like if you care about healthcare, care about education, you care about racial justice, you care about you know, economic opportunity, climate influences all of those and overlaps with them so strongly. And so I think watching the cabinet appointments has been really exhilarating for me to see all the different kinds of secretaries speak about climate and how it matters to their work. I mean, Janet Yellen <laughs> and Treasury, right? And Certainly Pete Buttigieg and transportation, you know, they're the obvious ones, but I think everyone has gotten the message that like climate matters and that's the only way we're going to make the really big changes we need to make is, is on that understanding that, that climate isn't separable from all these other things and that whatever policy you're designing, take that extra turn to think about it from a climate lens um, and make sure it's aligned with the transition we have to make. So I think it's great. Anything they're up to in the kind of climate tech innovation investing landscape that is important? That's still taking shape, but I, you know, it is, I will say just again, like innovation is one of the major emphases of the Biden climate plan. And, you know, DOE is an obvious place to, to lead that work. I think Jennifer Granholm is, is an excellent champion for, for innovation and, um, and also understanding how to do it in a way that, you know, serves the communities where where people are are living and working every day, right? I think the trap we could fall into is to like only innovate here in the Bay Area or in Boston, right? Like the sort of hubs that people think about. There's so much going on in the Midwest. There's so much going on in the South. We need to make sure that those innovation policies are designed to to benefit the whole country. But then also more specifically, like communities and 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 to bring jobs into communities where people live um, and to not sort of keep it trapped on the coasts. Nicole, where do you want to take yourself with this? Like, what are your aspirations for 
Sutro Energy Group for yourself? Do you want to end up as a policymaker? Do you want to stay in this field? Do you want to grow this enterprise? What are you trying to do? I'm trying to be of service wherever I can be of service, right? I'd say my personal mission statement is just getting more money, more resources into climate positive things. I'm focused in on this sort of intersection of different types of capital, different ways to mobilize capital and people into this fight. At the moment, doing it, you know, from my consulting platform has been really fulfilling because I think it sort of leverages a lot of my unique strengths and characteristics. But I'm constantly asking myself, is this the place where I have the most impact? I mean, for right now, the answer is this, but uh, you know, I could go lots of places in the future. I just want to be of service to this movement because we have to make these changes quickly and we don't have time to wait around. So uh, my message would be to anyone who's listening right now, like if you hear my voice, you are the person we need. Come join us. There's something for you to do. It's not another person. There's a role for, for you to play. And, and the work we're doing. So come join us. I mean, if you're talking to potential climate investors, you know, impact investors, people sitting on big donor advised fund money, you know, there's, there's just so many, there's so many dollars that are on the sidelines right now. What would you say to them? Why should they invest, say, in one of the, the one of the innovators that you work with? If you don't consider yourself a climate person right now, I'd argue that you are. I'd argue that whatever you care about, making money, preserving capital, you know, if you're an impact-oriented person, like whatever vertical that matters to you, like women's equality or education. I mean, we don't really have time to go into it right now, but like all of those things link back to climate and to mitigating climate, to adapting to climate. The disruptions that might take place yeah, the disruptions or will take place are going to mess everything up. They are taking place now, right? It's not, this isn't in the future anymore. It's going to create huge societal wide dislocation. Yes. Uh, you have to be ready for it. And, and at the same time, take advantage of the huge opportunity that presents, right? It's just, we often just talk about the negative side of like, oh, floods and fire and sea level rise and death and destruction. But like, think about if we have to decarbonize our whole economy, what a massive opportunity that presents, right? Like, (laughs) that's insane, insanely large. Um, So chase a little bit of that. So just, yeah, chase a little bit, get on board. At the very least, understand what you're risking if you don't. Nicole, is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? No, I've really enjoyed the conversation. We got to cover lots of different things, which is why I love this work that I do. Get to talk about lots of lots of different things all day. So. Well, I think you have an enviable spot in the world, <laughs> and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Well, thank uh, you. Any anything else you want to say? Uh, I well, thank you to the opportunity, and I would just repeat what I said before. Like, if you hear my voice right now, you're the person I'm talking to. Like, get get involved. Figure, figure out what you can do because everyone could do something. So, Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Nicole Sistrom. Nicole is at sutroenergygroup.com. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.